sometimes sometimes I just have to think if you could go back from some point in the future and you know just stop all that pre-conversation so you could have a much (laughs) shorter podcast it'd be like a mix of about time and the tomorrow war which is fitting because we're about to talk about the tomorrow war and paul also feels like traveling in time to make this intro a lot more concise it always feels like time travels so much slower when we're doing these intros i don't know why don't they say time slows down to molasses when you're having fun? Isn't that a thing? <laughs> that's, that's what they say. <laughs> Roll the cue, cue the music. Roll it. Cue it now. Do it. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. Wouldn't it be great to actually put that at the end of the show? Like introducing ourselves? Yeah, just to suggest that we're traveling through time. Oh, okay. Very meta. We can can think about doing that. Yeah, I'll think about doing that, and then I'll probably leave it here, and it'll just be an awkward conversation that the you know our friends will think about through the entire episode, and then either be, and then be disappointed with me for not putting it at the end. Who knows? It'll Who be knows? a thing. That's so you know that's that's getting real meta, and <laughs> I, Paul yeah. ain't nobody got time for that. No, it's true. It's true. And time travel is always messy anyway. These podcasts can be a little bit messy, so we don't need to make them any messier. Time travel in this movie that we are going to talk about can get pretty messy as well, every which way. Amazon has released what is very much a summer popcorn munching blockbuster sci-fi flick with none other than Chris Pratt. Now, Paul likes to you know, talk about my fanboyishness for Chris Pratt, but it's kind of funny. I'm actually not that much of a Chris Pratt fanboy. It's just that Paul's jealous that Chris <laughs> Pratt retweeted me once. And Chris Pratt's wife, his first wife, once liked one of my tweets about Chris Pratt. So it's just that really Chris Pratt is my fanboy, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I am sure that he has pictures of you hanging up in his room somewhere. And I actually watched – I wasn't going to watch The Tomorrow War – even for this podcast, but then Chris reached out to me and oh, yeah. asked for the personal favor that I give it a look and let him know what I thought. So here we are. That's really kind of you, Jake. I, I was really wanting to talk about Black Widow, but you said, no, no. Chris wants me to watch his silly blockbuster movie. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a little needy, a little clingy, but I said, you know what, Chris? I'm gonna I'm gonna do this for you. Not because Disney won't give me a link to Black <laughs> Widow to watch, but because I'll 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 throw you a bone. Yeah. I'll do it. It's fine. You're a you're a good man like that. So here we are. Disney was showering me with Black Widow links. <laughs> I could have bathed in them. I could have been flipping them out of my hand like I was flipping dollar bills, making it rain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I said, no, no. I don't have time for Black Chris. Widow. I don't have time for Scarlett Johansson in Black Widow in no. the most anticipated superhero movie of the year. Yeah. It's got to be Chris Pratt or nothing. Or nothing. I hope yeah. that someday you do the same solid for me when I ask you to, I don't know, 
look at one of my movies and right. talk about it with Chris Pratt. Because you're going to make a claymation movie. Wouldn't that be great? We're already so far off track. But yes, that would be super great. I would love to do a claymation movie. I would totally love to do a claymation movie. And you know what? If we did a claymation movie of our podcast, mm. we would barely have to move the figures. It would be so easy. Super easy. <laughs> And probably more successful. It'd be kind of similar to when Nick Offerman just sat in front of a fireplace, drinking, sipping whiskey and staring into the camera for several hours. And people, millions of people watch that on YouTube. Lots of people watching Nick Offerman do anything. Do anything. Which, which actually brings us to possibly the second segment of our podcast, where we talk about the most perfectly cast television shows in all of history all of human history thank you wesley coburn our good buddy on the twitter he suggested this list idea the top five perfectly cast tv shows we had to ramp it up and do it of all time it's a definitive list of all time definitive list of all time so we're ranking shows from you know the bc era and beyond yeah and since it is the definitive list Wesley, I do have to tell you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the idea, but your list is wrong. Yeah. Well, now you got to now you got to put you got to tell everybody his list. Well, we'll tell him at the at, during the during okay. the next segment, right? All this right. So insult him. This is a teaser. Sorry, Wes. <laughs> Sorry, Wes. And now you see what I have to put up with every all the time. <laughs> but without further ado, it's time to talk about the Tomorrow War. going to talk paul you i'm ready i'm ready <laughs> paul's ready i was just making him sit in it <laughs> it, is, it is like 95 degrees in my office right now 90 95 it didn't even get up to 95 today so how is that possible you're I've a liar been, i've been running laps in my office oh you've been heating it up artificially exactly just to be able to complain to me <laughs> that tracks right. <laughs> uh Tomorrow War, Paul, plot summary, go. Plot summary. So the, the movie starts off with Chris Pratt coming home after a hard day looking for another job. He sits down next to his, his very cute daughter to watch a soccer match. While they were watching the soccer match in what might be the very first time in a World Cup match, it is stopped. Play is actually stopped because soldiers from in the future beam down. They tell us that, uh, that 50 years from this particular date, when Chris Pratt is sitting with his daughter, they are going to be, humanity is going to be in sep- very dire straits because aliens are going to invade and attack them and pretty much destroy life as we know it. They are so desperate that they invent the technology to go back in time to snag soldiers for this future war um, to fight against these really horrible aliens. Um, I guess I don't need, this is no spoiler warning to say that eventually Chris Pratt, whose name in here is Dan Forrester, becomes one of those soldiers, which is lucky because he actually has some military experience. Um, some of the people who he fights with clearly do not. 
Um, and they are dealing with some really, really terrible beasts called white spikes. Um, they shoot spikes out of these tentacles. You'd think the tentacles would be bad enough. You'd think their fangs would be bad enough. But no, they also have to shoot spikes. So it's really about the story of Chris Pratt trying to save the world for his future daughter. His current Well, actually, his current daughter. In her future but, state. Exactly. Save humanity for his daughter in so she can have a good future to look forward to. There That's you go. what I'm trying to say. There you go. That's the spoiler-free version. I think, Paul, to really discuss my feelings about the Tomorrow War. Oh, it's actually 30 years. 30 years into the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 30 years in the future. In the year 2051. Right. Exactly. So that's where that was coming from. Yeah. Totally get it. Uh, I'm going to have to get into spoilers to talk about my several theories and feelings around the Tomorrow War. So this is your spoiler warning, everyone else. Paul's seen it. I don't need to give him a spoiler warning. (laughs) <laughs> unless he lied to me and he's like no i just read the imdb preview yeah, just i was just looking at wikipedia i know nothing about this movie you've been warned chris pratt traveling into the future to save the world for his daughter this movie i have to admit to you paul when i saw the trailer and the premise you know they kind of kept it under wraps for a while we knew chris pratt was helping produce a movie called the tomorrow war had to do with time travel and sci-fi and it sounded really interesting but then when the trailer came out and you see these future soldiers wormhole down onto the World Cup stage soccer field and say, we need you to come fight with us in the future. My immediate sci-fi watching brain thought was, why do you need to throw more people at it? It seems like people isn't the problem. Maybe you need to like, when I think about time travel, I'm just like, why are you throwing more people at it? There's so many other solutions. But I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it the benefit of a doubt. That maybe they've come up with some creative reason why the solution to this is to have more soldiers, more people go to the future to die in the present, in the future, and wipe out their population in the past at the same time that it's being wiped out in the future. You know, we're so conditioned to stuff like the Terminator, where it's go back and deal with like an event, right? Take care of or develop something in the meantime to prevent this or whatever. And the Tomorrow War absolutely did not come up with any more compelling reason. It just was <laughs> like, yeah, we just need people to come from the present to come die in the future where all of us have already died. It's already These aliens have already wiped out seven and a half billion people in the future. And they're like, you know what is going to solve this problem? Let's <laughs> go wipe out seven more. and a half billion people from the past. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily the – best thought out war strategy that I can think of. I, and you know, I don't know um, if this is accurate, but I sort of got the impression that, that time travel, it was just sort of like, it sort of, they sort of came upon it and they, but it's really restrictive. Like they, they made this comparison that, that time travel, you know, you're in such essentially two boats and there's a little a rope linking these two boats but they can't go anywhere else except for those two boats. So maybe they can only jump back into the World Cup, and that was it. They couldn't go anywhere else. They couldn't go to the future. They just had to be in that particular spot. That already messed with potentially the plot because the World Cup was being held in Qatar, which is where it is going to be held in the year 2022. When people are being sent to the future and sent back as a part, like when they're being recruited – they don't have to go to Qatar 
to yeah. be warped. They're they're doing it from their own countries. Yeah, and that is so true. It's and it's and they're also they're doing it to to the current points in time. They're yeah. not doing it from. They're not ever always going back to 2022 where they first showed up. It's like they are able to come from here. So the two rafts idea doesn't even match up because the raft should be 2022 and 2051, but yet they're able to continue coming to the raft of whatever the day week is right well, now. Well, see, the, the rafts are staying at, at uh, just the regular intervals, right? If you if you if you spend sure. a week, yeah, yeah, you're right. They're moving forward in time, and so yes, that that works, exactly. but. But then they did seem to make the like, so you can't go further back than 2022. I think, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. So, but the the uh, the bigger question is, so they kind of know where these these aliens showed up at first, right? Right. So why did these soldiers from the future not just stay in the past and like sort of organize a response yeah. to that particular spot? Because let's go investigate that part of Russia. Exactly. Why not? And you could even you can even nuke the whole area. Like you have you have thirty years to evacuate people, right? Yeah. So why not just get everybody that you need out of there and and make a really strong response in that area? Now, now it could be that they might come back somewhere else, you know, in in a year or two. But then you would still do the same thing, and maybe your your time your time travel strategy would be more refined by then so you could refine your attack you've got 30 years to figure it out so you've got 30 years to figure it out that's exactly right and worse yet you find out by the end of the movie you wouldn't have even had to evacuate any area they were literally in the most remote isolated area in the entire world would have been super easy to nuke the crap out of it or (laughs) go through a whole bunch of other solutions and everything's done Paul, the movie is really, really dumb. I just have to say that right up front. There's like none of it made character decisions, the logic of world leaders. Like I'm used to the logic of world leaders not making any sense. This really just doesn't. This went beyond unbelievable. It really, as as soon as you start thinking about it, even the tiniest bit logically, the whole thing just sort of falls apart. It does. I mean, you know, I, I was a little bit surprised even even within the first two minutes the the movie starts off with chris pratt and all of his fellow soldiers plummeting from like a thousand feet high and then somehow he survives by hitting a swimming pool which is great but i don't think i don't think physics works like that like (laughs) (laughs) you hit the bottom of that five foot swimming pool if you jump off the side yeah I mean, this is why people go to bridges to, you know, they jump from bridges. They don't mean themselves good things when they jump from bridges. And so you would think that, yes, the water is it's slightly better than the concrete. It it is slightly better than the concrete. Yes. But it does seem like from that height, there would still be some real issues. So right from the get-go, I thought, but, you know, you like Chris Pratt, and so you just sort of go with it. You know, he goes into the pool, and he's fine, and then he does his... But it it does feel you're really, really being kind to to Chris Pratt to sail through this entire movie with him and just sort yes. of accept everything that goes on. Yeah, and uh, and here's where I pivot slightly to say... 
I was still able to enjoy it as a big, dumb, stupid movie. It's way more enjoyable than a Transformers movie. Way yeah. more enjoyable. I'd, I'd watch the Tomorrow War Tomorrow. way before I'd rewatch yeah, a Transformers movie easily. Yeah. Like I've seen worse big, dumb sci-fi blockbuster type films. And so in a way, I think I enjoyed it more than I expected, even given all these dumb things, because it felt good to have a big, dumb sci-fi blockbuster back, which we did not get last summer. Yep. I I totally agree. It was ludicrous and dumb, and really someone should have put a lot more thought into it. But man, it was... The aliens were cool. Chris Pratt is likable. There were some funny lines. This was a try-hard movie. This was this was a little like, I don't know, Rudy from you know the the Notre Dame kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you Sean Astin. know that he doesn't he doesn't belong on the same field, but you root for him, and that's sort of what this movie is. You root for this movie because it tries so hard, and and it. On its own terms, it kind of succeeds. Like oh, that's interesting. I do want to. Di- what? How do, how do you? What are? What do you mean by on its own terms, it succeeds? If it really just wanted to be a big dumb action film, it succeeded at being a big dumb action film. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Killer Clowns from Outer Space succeeded at being a terrible movie because it really tried to be a terrible movie, which mm-hmm. makes it, in my opinion, not really a terrible movie because it did what it wanted to. So it succeeded when it really should have failed. Hmm. This movie wanted to just give people a little bit of a roller coaster ride. And you're not thinking about much when you're going on a roller coaster ride. You're just going with the flow. You see the aliens, they're terrible. You see Chris Pratt attacking the aliens in his winsome funny way you see jk simmons show up as his father which i thought was really fun um one of the greatest characters actually i thought was oh sam richardson yeah plays charlie most likable in the film most likable in the film and i had actually ironically just seen him in this r-rated movie that is super super fun actually werewolves within and um he was hilarious in that movie. He doesn't get as much to do in this movie, but he's still really fun to watch. So it was it was crazy, it was silly, but you kind of enjoyed it. What's funny when you say it just wanted to be a big dumb film, that leads to the to something that I did think was a contradiction to that, but also something that and that would normally tank my enjoyment of a film, but I was able to write it off just enough because I wanted it to be a big, dumb action blockbuster. So I just rolled my eyes at it because we have talked many times about how we sort of hate preachy movies. Paul, this was so obvious to me from the get go before we even got to the end where it became basically a Christian preachy come to Jesus type film. This this movie is all about climate change. It's all meant to be a parable about climate change. You know, it's really funny that you would say that because I saw the climate change message as well, but I actually thought it was super subtle. I mean, they just said, here they are. They were frozen. Now they're sort of melting. Here's the big spoiler warning. They, They actually, they are aliens, but they came to Earth a thousand years before, but they crash landed somewhere very, very cold and they all froze. So now a thousand years hence, 
they're all fine out. But you, it, they sort of came and went so fast, and there was no sort of judgmentalism. It was really just there. It is there. It is. I, I will say, yeah, they did. They did somewhat avoid the judgmentalism aspect. But I, I, I don't think it was that subtle because it started with the you talk about them watching a soccer game. They literally let you overhear some of the commentary of watching the soccer game. And it's commentary about how unbearably hot Qatar is and how difficult it is to play in. And then as Chris Pratt is teaching his students in the classroom, there's a TV screen and it's all climate change and global warming stuff on the TV screen. And then they're, they're like all the dialogue is and all the news footage are people that are and all the commentary about people that are resistant to people being drafted to go work, fight for this tomorrow war. Like, well, why do we have to go deal with this problem? It's all talking points from our current climate change debate. It's about fighting for our children in a world that, like, it's not for us. You know, it's for people who haven't even been born yet, for our grandchildren. And then it turns out that the reason the aliens were unleashed in the first place was because of climate change and the melting of the ice and stuff like that. Now, I have to – I want to be clear here. I I am concerned about climate change. I'm not anti-climate change narrative. I just felt like it was very – unsubtle in its approach but not preachy i still don't think it was preachy. yeah, yeah it was not as preachy as captain america 1990 i'll give you that <laughs> where they just came right out and said it and basically said and said pretty much straight up if people keep using plastic forks we're going to murder ourselves with toxins <laughs> it was just raising awareness that if if we use too many plastic bags there's a possibility that aliens could come down and eat us all. And I think that's a legitimate fear. So I think I am totally for them raising awareness in this way. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't fault them for it. It's just, that was another thing I kind of had to overcome and roll my eyes at. And I, I thought it was all very telegraphed. Like I knew it was already a climate change movie within the first five minutes. I was like, I do want this to be just be a big, dumb action film. So I was glad that there wasn't a call to action. I didn't have to do an altar <laughs> call at the end and come repent and, you know, recycle all my plastic forks, which I already do. But I'm glad I just, you know, it's like when at the you checkout. Shouldn't, you shouldn't use plastic forks at all, Jake. Yeah, right. But you should recycle them if you happen to use them. If they happen to land in your hand, yeah. yes, That's right. you should. If they fall from the sky and impale you in the thigh. <laughs> It, you know, I didn't have to do the whole like checkout counter thing. We're like, would you like to donate a dollar to help save the polar bears? And you're like, I'm going to give my money somewhere else and not to you where you're going to take off some of the top, right? I'm like, look, tomorrow war. I'm here for the aliens shooting spikes into people. I'm not here to learn about the polar ice caps, all right? <laughs> I'm already bought in on it. Jake, so hostile. You know what I thought was one of the more delightful parts of the movie? Hmm. Was the fact that Mary Lynn Razgub? I never know how to say her name. Razgub. She has a very difficult name, but I I was thrilled because for anyone who was a Twenty Four fan, she was Chloe on Twenty Four, and she is here dealing with with aliens, with aliens. in her very sourpuss sort of way. She has a very distinctive face. Like if if you don't even recognize the name Mary Jane Razgub. 
you would see her and you'd be like, oh yeah, her. Oh, of course. Her. Of course. Yes. I, I thought that the movie could have used a little bit more Mary Jane Rashkub. Rashkub. One more thing I have to say is when it comes to the, some of the logic behind the action with the white spikes was I think I would have enjoyed the movie a little bit more if it wasn't vacillating back and forth between how often and how many spikes white spikes can shoot. Because there were times where it seemed like they had unlimited supplies. Oh, yeah, yeah. That it, they could shoot an unlimited range and at you know pinpoint accuracy. And then in the middle of that same scene, all of a sudden they would completely abandon shooting any of their spikes just so that you know we the heroes could survive. And then they'd go back to shooting their spikes incessantly so that they could murder a whole bunch of random characters. And then when the camera comes back onto the main people, all of a sudden they're allergic to using their spikes again. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to say about that other than the, the aliens just follow the movie's inconsistency. That's right. You know, I, I was actually thinking about their spikes though, because you know, it's weird how you start, how your brain just sort of goes in a different direction as you're sometimes watching these movies. And I was, I was thinking about spikes and how that would work in nature, how that would evolve. How is it, does it work like cor- porcupine spikes, which mm-hmm. I just found out the porcupines don't actually shoot their spikes. Oh, So what, what mechanism? Where that, yeah. Where'd that myth come from? I don't know. I think just to terrify us all of porcupines more yeah. than we already would be. But yeah, it just seemed like uh, it, it. I was wondering about that. And then how would they grow back? Would right. the spikes grow back? Right. How do they produce so many? It just, it puzzled me from an evolutionary biology type of perspective. I just yeah. didn't quite understand it. So I I was really appreciative of the global warming message actually because it was something that I could definitely understand. <laughs> You're like that this I get. I don't this understand any other decision they're making. <laughs> Everything else is stupid. <laughs> but the aliens were cool looking. Weren't they freaky? They were freaky. Yeah. Yeah, they were freaky in a sort of uh I feel like an AI machine generate watched a whole bunch of alien sci-fi monster movies and said, what can I take and shove? Cause like at some point it looked like their tentacles that could shoot spikes also had eyeballs. Yeah. Yeah, Like some of them look like mouths. Like some of them look like mouths. And so you're like one tentacle is a mouth and another tentacle is an eye and another tentacle is a spike shooter. But then they also have a face with eyes and mouth and, I was I was also a little worried about their light skin actually because mm. I thought that they could get you know pretty sunburned in our world. I mean that's that's why you were you were concerned for them. I was concerned for them. They're like, look, I know you guys are going to take over the world, but you know you got to take care of it if you're going <laughs> to take it over for us. Like we can't have you dying to cancer and well, but because really when you think about the animal world, I mean so. Like even in really warm places, animals typically have fur, right? Or they have dark skin or whatnot. It just seems like like light skin, that is a bad thing for aliens to have. It seems like it was probably not not the best move for them to have invade our planet. They should have invaded someplace a lot darker. Just to just to stay away from the UV rays, the pitch black planet, whatever yeah, that planet I, was. I have light skin, so I'm very sensitive to you know this is kind of triggering for you. Exactly. Although there was also the whole plot point about how 
the aliens themselves weren't didn't even bring themselves there. It was other aliens that yeah. crash landed, and they would just happen to be the cargo. So Which that was like it was like an oil spill. That was kind of interesting. So it was like an oil spill that their cargo was dangerous, and they were transporting dangerous cargo. So it was like oh an oil goodness. ships breaking open in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Jake, Jake. Hey, problematic. Well, Again, I'm against me. it. People I, tell like, me that I, I, I'm against. I, I'm against making the world a worse place. All right, sue me. People tell me that I sometimes overinterpret movies. I don't know. I think I think I need to bow to your overinterpretation. Coming next week to Watching God on Pathios. Paul <laughs> taking all of my talking points. Yeah. In, <laughs> it was thinking, all I can't about believe I missed it this. Was, uh... <laughs> I'm going to make it mine. <laughs> there you have it, The Tomorrow War. It's a big, dumb action film. If you can overlook all the things we talked about, you'll have a blast. I enjoyed it, Paul. I enjoyed myself in spite of everything else. I'm going to give it a 6.3 out of 10. 6.3? I'm going to give it a 7. Look at that. I'm giving it a 7 because I really enjoyed it. And I, I convinced you that it was about climate change, and you're like, I'm bumping it up some grades. Exactly. Exactly. Because people need to be aware of climate change. It's a very, very serious issue. Also, when my wife said, I have told her about The Tomorrow War, and I said, this is your type of movie, because she loves really dumb movies. She said, no, 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 I don't care about it, don't care about it. She saw the trailer, and she was all in. And I thought, you know what? I can watch The Tomorrow War with her again. So the fact that I want to watch it again, it suggests that it's a pretty fun movie. Don't tell her about my take. I want to see if she picks up on the same thing. She will definitely not. I think she'd be like, oh, you told me this was a dumb movie. <laughs> it's a message film. <laughs> All right. Speaking of not talking about message films, it's time for Rank Geeks and the top five most perfectly cast television shows of all time. Rank Geeks, two nerds, Paul in his 95-degree office, getting real smelly, real rank, as it were. That's and a joke. This time, we are ranking the top five most perfectly cast TV shows of all time. We already told you that. Thanks to Wes Coburn for this idea. His top five, in order, from five to one, The Andy Griffith Show, Good Luck Charlie, Firefly, Friday Night Lights, and The West Wing. Paul, we confirmed earlier that there's no overlap with our list. So you guys got to keep listening. You can't just think we copied Wes's list. <laughs> there are some finely casted shows on Wes's list. I mean, Andy Griffith's show, that was pretty great. Aunt B, she was Aunt B. And yeah. Firefly was great. We both thought about adding Firefly to our list. It was a contender. But we did not. We did not make the top five. So without further ado, Paul, number five on your list of most perfectly cast TV shows. The X-Files. The X-Files. This has an advantage because really there are only four characters that you really need to be aware of. You've mm. got... You've got Fox Mulder, you've got Dana Scully, you've got Assistant DA Walter Skinner, and of course you've got the Cigarette Smoking Man. The Cigarette Smoking Man alone would probably 
push this onto many lists because he mm. was just perfectly cast. He was supposed to be there for one show, and instead he became the villain for the entire series. Look at that. I admit that there was a time when I had a bit of a crush on on Gillian Anderson. I thought mm-hmm. she was really, really cool. She was perfect as as Dana Scully, I thought. She brought the same. She had the toughness. She had the sensitivity. She brought the faith element in. She was great. And Fox Mulder is just Fox Mulder. David Duchovny has has never played a better role than than Fox Mulder. So there still you go. Never seen, still never seen a single episode of The X-Files, but you I did are... see David Duchovny in the movie California with Brad Pitt, so same thing. You know, we really need to get back to your backlist, and you need to watch some X-Files. You have to watch some X-Files. Strong words. Number five on my list shares something spiritually with Paul's number five on his list, and that is it's a pretty small core cast and that's kind of why it made this for me and that is 2010 through 2017's Sherlock. Sherlock? Nobody has embodied Sherlock for me the way Benedict Cumberbatch has and that includes Robert Downey Jr. who did a really great job. I enjoyed Robert Downey. Same with Martin Freeman as Watson and uh, the, the secret surprise sauce in all of this for both my wife and I was the actor Andrew Scott as Jim Moriarty. Have you watched BBC Sherlock, Paul? I have watched uh, an episode or two, but I don't think I've ever seen Moriarty in it. So it's worth watching just for what they do with Moriarty and and what Andrew Scott does with the role. It's absolutely mesmerizing and terrifying. Seriously, it's a fantastic role. And almost for Moriarty alone – Forget about Ben Fiber Cumberbund or whatever his name is. <laughs> Andrew Scott as Moriarty makes Sherlock as much as you think Benedict Cumberbatch makes Sherlock and Martin Freeman makes Watson. This guy was a revelation. I'd never seen him in anything else that I knew of prior. I've seen him pop up a couple other places since, like 1917, for example, a film we've talked about on this very show. Andrew Scott was absolutely insanely brilliant as Moriarty in Sherlock. And so for those, that core cast of kind of three, they become the the thrust of the show over time and just so good. So let me, I, I, I will grant you, I've heard many, many, many good things about Sherlock, but here's the thing. I don't think any of those people outside Moriarty, who I have not seen, they do not define Sherlock Holmes. When people think Sherlock Holmes, they think, even if they don't know it, they think the Basil Rathbone version of Sherlock Holmes. I think think people over a certain age think that, Paul. Oh, ouch. Well, what about the Great Mouse Detective? I do like the Great Mouse Detective, but that's not who I think about when I think of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, my goodness. All right. Like for for people of a certain age, it's either going to be – it's a battle between Robert Downey and Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, I get what you're saying, that the the Basil Rathbone is sort of this definitive Sherlock Holmes sort of stereotype image that we have. Exactly. It's like the Bela Lugosi Dracula. But I'm talking about the way Benedict Cumberbatch inhabited this role. He was the perfect cast for it. And same Freeman as Watson, Scott as Moriarty. Mm, so good. All right, number four for me, The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Ah. 
going a little retro. Actually, most of my list is very retro. I had some some modern shows on that I was really considering, and honestly. Wesley, this was such a great idea. I really wanted to extend this to 10 to 15 things. You know, yeah, there's, there's a battle royale in yeah. probably the top 20, really. Because yeah, there's so it, many great shows with ensemble casts. Like, I could have made this list with all comedy shows, honestly. Absolutely. You've got, you know, Cheers, Arrested Development, The Americans, Mad Men, even Gilligan's Island. You could make a case that Gilligan's Island was perfectly cast, I think. But my number four show is Mary Tyler Moore show. And this sort of gives you an indication of just how strong um, the field really had to be. Because... Mary Tyler Moore show, for those who don't know, it won more Emmys than any other show in history until Frasier came along. Six of their main actors, I think there were really only seven or eight that could be counted series regulars. Six of them won Emmys for their performances. Ed Asner, Valerie Harper, Mary Tyler Moore herself, Cloris Leachman, who just passed away, Betty White, and Ted Knight. Mm. All of them won um, Emmys for their performances. It's uh, it, it would be hard to argue that that was not a pitch perfect cast for what they did there. It worked because of the characters in the cast. Yeah, no, I mean, I I had tough I had a tough time with all these shows that had these just insanely talented ensemble casts, and that's why number four for me also features similarly something of an ensemble cast, and I just sort of had to use it as hey, this is my stand-in for this category because it could have been The Office. It could have been Seinfeld, Friends, Frasier, like all these other shows. But I went with, because what it it meant for me and how I connected with the characters, and hey, it's my list, so guess what? Deal with it. (laughs) For me, I ended up going with this in this category with Parks and Recreation. All these other shows were so well cast, but the likability factor – beyond how well cast they were because sometimes a good cast is inherently unlikable Mm -hmm. and is just loathsome but when you think about all the side characters in and even the villains inside parks and recreation they are all so in like insanely likable as they're in their comically villain way villainous ways and the main cast the personalities they bring the way you're able to identify with them and feel like your buddies and feel like they're friends you can come back to and hang out with. Mm. Perfect yeah. for me. I, I have to say this was another show that I really, really considered on for my list. And honestly, it didn't make it primarily because I knew it would make yours. Mm. It is it is a wonderful cast. And you think about all the different characters that you have there. I mean I mean, Amy Poehler was just great. You think about Nick Offerman and how he can make, uh, he became sort of a legend. His character became a legend as Ron Swanson. Um, you just can't get away from all the quotes and all the memes about him. He's, he's just so, he's just so Ron Swanson. I, I really loved Aubrey Plaza as April Ludgate. Yep. Um, and, and it shows the talent level of the cast that she is now hosting the Spirit Awards pretty much every year, I think, because she is just that kooky and that funny. And then, of course, you've got Chris Pratt, who we've already talked about on this show. And you can't forget about Jean Ralphio. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Number three, Paul. This is going to be very controversial, but I will defend it to the end of my days. Lost. 
No, disagree strongly. That is controversial. Yeah, I thought it was super well cast. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the show worked as well as it did. It had a very interesting premise. Even Um, when I liked the show, Paul, the acting was not that good. But continue. You know, it's not really about the acting. It's how they embodied the characters, right? I think that, that in a show like Lost, you don't... It doesn't you're not there for for an acting class 101 but if they they form believable characters that that create these these interesting tensions i think it really works i always think about matthew fox as jack shepherd and terry o'quinn as john Locke. you know that that whole man of science man of faith dichotomy thought that their tension was picture per, picture perfect throughout most of the show even even characters that went for just a season, Mr. Echo, I thought was fantastic. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez uh, as Ana Lucia Cortez was really great in season two. Um, when the hatch was finally opened, Henry Ian Cusick, is that how you say his name, as Desmond? I thought he was really effective. They make some really effective characters that that helped make Lost the phenomenon that it was for a couple of years. And then I think it actually gave us one of the greatest bad guys of all time in Ben Linus. Michael Emerson is Ben Linus. He was creepy. I'm telling you, Lost, he was a fabulously cast show. We're never going to finish this podcast if I start arguing with you about Lost again. (laughs) Just know that I have logged my protest with vehemence (laughs) number three for me uh is a case in point for why i am uh needing to say i'm sorry to our friends listening because i lied to you i didn't pick just one ensemble comedy (laughs) number three for me is new girl this one was a surprise entry on my list also a surprise entry for where it landed on the list paul because with new girl i wouldn't list I wouldn't list New Girl as one of my favorite TV shows, but I think that makes this pick more honest, Paul, because you just picked Lost because it's one of your favorite TV shows and you love all the dialogue and the back and forth and the writing. But really from a casting perspective, I think it could have been a lot better with better actors. There nope. you go. Or actors nope. who nope. better embodied the roles. But with New Girl, which is not one of my favorite – I enjoy New Girl. Let me just say that. But it's it's not a top five show for me. But the characters in New Girl – are top five and top 10 and some are hard. They're hard to pick between whether it's Winston, whether it's Nick Miller or Schmidt, those two in particular, what Jake Johnson does with Nick Miller and Max Greenfield does with the character of Schmidt is absolutely golden. Like the casting of those actors and actresses to play these roles and inhabit them as these, you know, schlubby trying to figure out their lives, 20 and 30 somethings, I I've very rarely seen a show that uh, the characters jump off like a comedy like that, that they jump off and become so quotable. Like with Seinfeld, right? You think about the premise, you know, you think about the, the episodes, you think about mm-hmm. the, the writing and the creativity and the bottle episodes. And with the office, you think about how Steve Carell, you know, just brought this insane energy, like awkward, painfully awkward energy and the but the writing in the office is the other thing you think about beyond steve carell is there's so much 
uh, intelligence and the writing and things like that. But when I think about a show that just has some of the truly most inhabited characters, like I cannot see Jake Johnson without thinking Nick Miller. I cannot see Max Greenfield without thinking Schmidt. And same with Zoe Deschanel. I don't think of her as being from Elf anymore. I think of her as Jess from New Girl. And Damon Wayans Jr., he's his – all of the characters became – all the actors became their characters and are forever imprinted in my mind as that, even as I watch them in other stuff, which hmm. to me indicates perfect casting. Even if the writing's not the best – even if the story doesn't always work, even if it's not my favorite comedy of all time, the character casting was on point. I have seen a total of one show of New Girl, so I cannot even argue with you. Although I suspect that you're wrong. Yeah. Number two. Number two. Number two for me, it's got to be Friends. There is and, – and here's the what thing. a basic think, pick, Paul. So it, basic. It is a very basic pick because it's so obvious. It's so obvious to – most of the people probably listening because you think about the passion that people have had for friends for so long, you know, just the idea that the friends reunion show on HBO max was the biggest cultural event that, that happened that weekend. It might be one of the biggest things to happen that spring. It speaks to the show's power. And I think that show's power is embedded in the characterizations that we saw from these people. I'm I'm only a passive Friends fan. Like I've seen maybe yeah. 20 episodes in my life. I but every single one of them I have enjoyed. I know all the characters. I know their quirks. I know their foibles. I know which one I most like, which one I would most want to date. You have all these different um, aspects. It's it's almost a weird alchemy of chem, of uh, personal chemistry that that went into to Friends, and it's a little bit mystifying, and yet I kind of get it. Yeah, you know? no, I, I teased you about being basic, but I think this is actually I would I would equate this to being the Gen X equivalent to New Girl. What New Girl is to millennials, I think Friends is probably to Gen X. In that, yeah, when you look at Friends objectively, I think personally that there's a lot of flaws you can point out with it. And I don't think it holds up particularly well. And it's very possible that new girl similarly won't hold up particularly well, but you're exactly right that the characters, the set of friends and the way they were embodied by the actors like Schwimmer and Aniston and uh, beyond is what makes it something that I think people want to return to because they really did connect with the characters the way I was talking about with new girl, the way I was able to connect with those characters and so I think you're right. And the fact that you're not a huge fan of Friends, it, I have to tip my cap to you. It, it is indicative of a solid objective pick. <laughs> because it's not coming from your fanboy nature. <laughs> Number two for me is my only other non-comedy on the list, though it is comedic in its own ways. And that is Better Call Saul. You know, I knew this was going to come up on your list as well. This is one that you could certainly accuse me of being a Homer fanboy because I do like so many other things about Better Call Saul. I do think the writing is really good. I do think the cinematography is probably one of the best, if not the best, I've seen in television ever. And uh, the, the, the intensity of the storylines and the way they get you to buy into the emotional stakes – has a lot to do with 
the characters, but also has a lot to do with the writing and the pacing of the show, the creative direction, things like that. But what they were able to do with Bob Odenkirk as Jimmy McGill was what really sold me on this show in the first place, because Bob Odenkirk, that's not his background. His background is not this type of character. I mean, he was the Mr. Show that he did with um, the, with the, oh, why am I forgetting his name from Arrested Development? Tobias from Arrested Development, and it was just sort of a crass adult, like male, stupid sketch comedy. And that was, and he was a stand up comic. And the way he was, so he's not somebody you would think would be cast in this role. And similarly, Michael McKean, right? He's he's done so much in the goofy world of mockumentaries, done some absolutely ridiculous characters. So the gravitas that both of those actors are able to bring to their roles that Rhea Seahorn does in hers, Jonathan Banks, Michael Mando, of course, Giancarlo Esposito, who overlaps from Breaking Bad. Paul, when you start to work your way through Better Call Saul and you start to see the way these sort of unlikely actors and actresses start to embody these roles, I I kept bumping Better Call Saul higher and higher up my list. Well, you know, one of the things you mentioned that 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 it has some advantages, but I think those advantages are always inherent in in good casting, right? Yeah. You've got to have the writing if you're going to have a good cast. You can have a spectacular cast, but if the writing isn't sharp, it's not going to work. The 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 cast members have to have they have to embody somebody that can live and breathe and make you feel for them. And I think that that better call Saul, a lot like breaking bad, actually that came before it. I think that they did a really fantastic of drawing some very sharply defined characters. And certainly Saul from both shows is a fantastic character in and of himself. You know, I think that, that he can, that character can carry a lot of weight. He's really good. I, I think – honestly, I think it's where you see the improvements that the Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould make over Breaking Bad is their ability to find these characters and explore them. To me, Better Call Saul almost makes Breaking Bad feel like a melodrama. <laughs> Interesting. Number one for me. This, again, goes against any sort of fanboy reputation that I might have. It blends the – powerhouse talent and Emmy wins of the Mary Tyler Moore show along with the indelible images that Friends gives us with these personality archetypes. I am speaking, of course, of course, of the Golden Girls. Paul, this is your most randomly populist pick yet. (laughs) But not in a basic way. Golden Girls, I have is just beloved. And I don't think anybody would fight you on this. I, it, it would be hard to. I mean, the characters are just so well well illustrated. They're so funny. They're so individual. I was amazed, actually, as I was doing some research on the Golden Girls. The very first year it was out of the gate. All four of the main actresses were nominated for, for a Best Actress. Wow. And, um, Actually, I do have to say Estelle Getty was Best Supporting Actress, but everybody else was <laughs> – three of the five nominees were all Golden Girls. And every single one of those four eventually won an Emmy for, for their portrayal. That's uh, great. That's awesome. It really is. It, it It is a weird, weird show that actually it was a guilty pleasure that sometimes I would I would stay home and, and watch Golden Girls reruns. 
you know, um, when, when I was sick or whatnot, because they were just so fun. And I was definitely 50 years younger than any of those people on there. Um, but it was just a fun show. And the reason why it was a fun show is beginning of the sentence and stop the sentence right here. It was the characters. That's what made the show work. So can I, can I make a confession here, Paul? Yes. I have never seen an episode of the Golden Girls either. <laughs> what, what is wrong with you, Jake? What is wrong? I have seen so much gushing over it in the last 10 years on Twitter. Like Twitter loves the Golden Girls. As I think we've sort of talked about on the show kind of incidentally before, anytime Betty White starts trending, everybody's terrified that she's dead <laughs> and Golden Girl meme gifts start swirling, right? But I've never seen an episode. I feel – I don't care that I haven't seen an episode of The X-Files. I feel bad that I haven't seen an episode of Golden Girls. So it's really fascinating to me. One of the things that, that I, I personally like about my list is that Betty White is in two of these shows. You know, She was in the Mary Tyler Moore show and she was in the Golden Girls. And she is incredibly perfectly cast in both and yet she plays completely different characters, completely different characters. And it speaks to to just how how good Betty White is. You She's know? so good. We so just recently good. rewatched rewatched the proposal with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. Oh and yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She steals that right away from them. Like you're <laughs> like, oh, I can't wait to watch this movie with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds, and then Betty White comes and just submarines both of them. <laughs> yeah. the The moral of that story is is if you want to do a star turn in any movie do not invite betty white to the party because she will she will be all anybody ever talks about paul we did not swap lists before starting this show and we could not have planned the segue any better the final show on our in our rankings number one on my list also includes betty white a <laughs> recurring character <laughs> And that is community. <laughs> she was in community. I had she no was idea. For, she had a several episode run. She wasn't, it was, so she was technically recurring, but it was something like a three, maybe a three or four episode run as a side character in community. Oh, and hilarious. Does it, it is so good in that. Uh, the, the show is not revolving around her. She does again steal the parts that she's in. Uh, community, where it kept bumping up my list, as though I've talked elsewhere about how much I enjoy the meta nature of the show and, you know, so much of its quirky humor and intelligence. I, Paul, I honestly don't think I had seen any of the, the ensemble cast in anything prior. I mean, they were really outside of Chevy Chase. I think right. we had like right. when this show was airing it or when it was being advertised in its first season, I remember seeing the ads and it looked like one of those just kind of like obscure TV shows where somebody's like, we got Chevy Chase. What can we do? Like what can we, who can, what kind of randos can we throw around him and make some sort of ridiculous TV show? I had no clue who Joel McHale or Danny Pudi or Donald Glover or uh, Gillian Jacobs or Ken Jong were like, or um, Yvette Nicole Brown or Allison Brie, Jim Rash. I mean, these these were names nobody was talking about prior to Community. And so, how many times have we seen those shows and been like, eh, 
that was all right, or eh, that wasn't that great, and eh, uh, nothing memorable about it. And yet, the way each of those actors and actresses completely fell into these roles, I mean, they had to do some bananas things in community. And, and they had to play many different types of roles for these different types of meta send-ups of other types of content. And the way they rolled characters and brought through, like, through lines and threads in the characters through these ridiculous setups and brought you know comedy and life into it, I mean, it just seemed like a ridiculously difficult task to do. And they were exactly the right people to do it. I cannot think of how that show would be anything if you didn't find these bright and intelligent people. Most of them have gone on to do you know, some other interesting things since then. It really launched them. I mean, Jim Rash has an Oscar now, which Crazy. is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And so for me, community just had to be there at the top because of the way these you know, unknown, out of nowhere nobodies I mean, you forget that Chevy Chase is even in the show because yeah. he is so far down the list of the most interesting like characters inhabited by these actors. I, I agree. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that – and again, it goes back to the writing. The, the writers gave characters that these, these actors and actresses could embody – and they really hit a home run with them. I mean, it, you can have the writing, but if you don't have the right people in those roles, it just doesn't work. The chemistry between every single one of those characters just felt right. It just felt right. I haven't seen that much community, but I really have appreciated what I saw. And this list actually, it makes, it reminds me just how oddly blessed we are to be in a world that has a lot of really pretty good entertainment. I mean, granted from a plugged in point of view, from my day job point of view, there will be a lot of problems with a lot of these shows, but they can be funny. They can be witty. They can be heartfelt. Um, I, I feel like I need a couple of lifetimes to catch up on some of these things. Back when Andy Griffith was it, it was it. There were not many shows to compare to the Andy Griffith show. Yeah. You can you can point to six or seven shows that that feel like must watches and who has time for all that? It is as they say an embarrassment of riches. There you have it, our individual top 5 so but collectively top 10 perfectly cast TV shows of all time since we had zero overlap. Honorable mention shoutouts. Paul's already mentioned his I have a crossover to his honorable mention list in Arrested Development, as well as The Office and Firefly, uh, some just really fantastic Seinfeld I would throw in there as well. Stranger Things. Stranger Things. Lots of great options out there. Ted Lasso. But Did I mention Ted Lasso? It's a we weird. didn't talk about Ted Lasso, but Ted Lasso, very well cast as yeah. well. So we imagine you guys probably have some... Uh, concurrence as well as disagreement with our lists and we would love to hear it we're on twitter or you can hit us up on our blog but on twitter i'm at jake underscore roberson i'm at ac paul and now it's time for the most least important thing Here we are at the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours. It's where we take the minutiae and we inflate it until it explodes. 
and vice versa. We take explosions and we repackage them and we shrink wrap them down into minutia. It's the most least important thing. Paul, I'm kicking us off today because I've got a miniature segue for my most least important thing. It is very least important. And that is uh, I was reading about an actor who's getting ready to uh, or who who had to get ready for a TV show that is about to come out. That TV show is called The North Water. Mm. And it's going to be coming out on AMC Plus uh, in the summer of 21, here in July, actually, and then later in like the UK on BBC. And it's uh, about – basically it's an adaptation of Ian McGuire's novel of the same name and it's about an 1850s harpooner named Henry Drax. Good old Our, Henry Drax. Good yeah. old Henry Drax. Where the crossover is is Colin Farrell is going to be playing Henry Drax. And to prepare for this role, he had to go – to physically transform himself to play this character. And according to the director, that included putting on a lot of weight by eating six breakfasts every morning. Goodness gracious. Why? And when I, when I saw somebody say that he had to eat six breakfasts every morning, I said, number one, call the hobbits, right? <laughs> number two, how does one eat six breakfasts in a morning? Where do you, where do you start drawing the line of like it not just being one big long breakfast. How do you delineate it into six breakfasts? And if you are delineating it into six breakfasts, how many hours are you eating? And what are the intervals in between? Like is it eating for five minutes for at 6.05 and five minutes at 7.05 and five minutes at 8.05? Paul, how does one – and when does it start to crunch crossover into brunch and lunch? There's it's so true. many questions I have. It's true. My only question is how do I get that job? Because really, breakfast food is by far the best food, and yeah. I could eat I could eat six breakfasts a day, no yeah. doubt. Now I wouldn't necessarily eat lunch or dinner, but breakfast, oh my goodness, bacon, sausage, waffles, ooh, donuts, donuts, yeah. donuts. So we'll see if he ends up being the perfect cast for Northwater, this TV show. But it sounds like he got perfectly pampered eating six breakfasts a day. <laughs> like so, he ate six breakfasts a day but no lunches or dinners period <laughs> it's like oh oh so he only had three extra meals not only six. three extra meal second yeah. breakfast so mine i was actually kind of hoping that you would start off this segment with your traditional mountains molehills type uh, of spiel because i have one that is almost literally that Oh, good. Almost literally that. Do you want me to spin uh, back the intro real quick and do it in the middle of the segment, or you just want to go? Let, let's just go. All right, go let's ahead. Let's go. So, yeah, yeah. Speaking of, of turning molehills into mountains, that is a little bit what I, – I can't say that that's exactly what they've done in Denmark, but mm. it's close because they have turned a big bunch of sand into one huge sandcastle. Ooh. Designers in Denmark have created the world's biggest sandcastle, which stands more than 69 feet tall. 69 feet tall. Uh, it contains 5,000 tons of sand and beats out the previous world record for sandcastle uh, by 10 feet. Um, it's a beautiful structure. If you happen to look at it up online, wow, it's a looking very, right now. very, yeah, it's a very cool thing. But if you notice, Jake, at the very top of the tower, yeah, there's a coronavirus 
Well, it's oh. the, the big ball at the top there is just a, a representation of the coronavirus. Oh, look at all these pictures I'm pulling up. The top is cut off. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, so they they put a little coronavirus virus on top of this castle because oh, nice. creators yeah. say it's ruling our lives everywhere. Uh, so, so it was it was a it was a it wasn't just to break a record. It was to protest. Well, just who is not a little bit mad at coronavirus right now? You know, the coronavirus has been a bummer. However, did they make a movie about like how they did this? Because how did they do this? It is crazy. Well, it's really fascinating, actually. I I, am always amazed at how they can make something like this. Uh, Apparently, they actually mixed uh, like 10% of, of what they built it with is actually clay. So it holds together a little bit better than the same. a little like cheating to me. Which is a I little guess bit clay like can cheating. be naturally occurring in the soil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's sort of a cheat. Now, here's the real cheat. They sprayed it with glue to make it stand up. Oh, come on. So, and, and what I'm no they, longer impressed. Well, see, here's the thing. With the glue, they hope that it'll stay around for a few months as opposed to being just wiped out with the next tide. Right. So they are hoping that it will last throughout a few months. Um, But they do expect that it'll eventually go the way that all sandcastles do. And eventually it'll just be another pile of sand in February or March. And all the kids around Denmark will be playing with with glue infested sand. It's is it weird or what does it say about my psyche that I have less respect for them that. They would put all that time and energy in and then try to preserve it when sort of the beauty of the sandcastle is its unpreservability. So I would have respected them more if they let it crumble in minutes instead of months. I I halfway agree with you. I mean, I, I think it's an impressive structure no matter what. But there is something poignantly memorable and actually paradoxically memorable about a sandcastle that does not last, yeah. right? Yeah, it it shows that we need to hold things loosely, That's even right. beautiful things. That's right. And with that, we've come to the end of this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All. If you miss us in between episodes, we are at our blog. You can look it up. It's called Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All, just like this podcast. We're also on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I am at AC Paul. We want to hear your list ideas. We like your list ideas. Thanks, Wes Coburn. You can find him at Coburn Wesley on Twitter. Tell I'm not him sure if he wants all the, the followers that he might get from that. That's right. That's right, Wes. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you have a fun list idea that we have not covered, we want to hear it from you. So hit us up on the blog, on Twitter. We're ready for it. And it might just make the show. In fact, it's fairly likely it'll make the show <laughs> because we're that good of guys that's really this is just a big way to pat ourselves on the back and uh you know what i'm gonna done i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna done before i stop saying words good until next time we'll catch you on the flip side bye
Nailed it. <laughs> yeah.